So with the digital revolution, what we are unleashing is the power of information and knowledge. We've developed a new ability to gather data, to analyze it in new ways, and to get new insights, and to make the resulting knowledge instantly accessible throughout the world. In doing this, we are essentially opening up an entirely new dimension of improvement. Hello and welcome to the Parkview Podcast. I'm Paul Hank, Investment Analyst at Parkview, and joining me is Usama Himani, CIO at The Firm. Many would argue that we're living through a golden age of technological innovation. But despite this, productivity growth is lower than it was three decades ago. Why isn't all this disruption being reflected in the numbers? To answer this question and to discuss his work on innovation and productivity, our guest this week is Marco Annunziata. Marco has worked in policy, finance, and industry, most recently as the Chief Economist and Head of Business Innovation and Strategy at GE. He is a TED speaker and two times winner of the Rubzinski Prize for Best Paper in Business Economics for his book, The Economics of the Financial Crisis. He currently runs his own strategic advisory, Annunziata Desai Advisors. Thank you, Marco, for taking the time to talk to us. It's always a pleasure to hear your views. Maybe for the sake of the listeners, you can tell us a bit about your journey into an interest in technology. You've gone from a, from a macroeconomist to something far more specific. Absolutely. No. Thank you, Sama, for having me. It's a great, great pleasure. Always a pleasure to exchange views with you and a real pleasure to be on your podcast. So I'm an economist. I started off with my undergraduate in Italy, then I did my PhD in Princeton, and then I became a full-fledged classic macroeconomist. The first part of my career was at the IMF, as you know very well, Usama. And then I went into finance and I was in, doing research, macro research in investment banking for 10 years. And then I did the jump into industries. So in 2010, I moved to General Electric. And that was a fascinating transition for two reasons. One was that I realized that after having spent nearly 20 years working as an economist, it was actually a lot that I didn't know about how the economy actually works. So there were days when I looked at myself in the mirror and I said, oh my God, I actually had no idea how the economy really works. And from that perspective, working side by side with people who make the decisions of should we invest or not, open a new plant or not, hedge commodities or not, was eye-opening. But the second reason why the G experience was fascinating and it's relevant to today's conversation is that I arrived just at the time when General Electric was getting excited about the so-called digital industrial revolution, so bringing software into industrial devices. I jumped into it because I, you know, my eyes lit up with ideas of productivity and employment and all these macro issues. But combined with the fact that I was already based in San Francisco and Silicon Valley, that got me the opportunity to really become plugged in into the ecosystem of startups and to look at innovation really happening on the ground. And so to think both about the macroeconomic implications of technology and innovation, but also to think deeply and see in action how innovation gains, gains traction in companies or doesn't, and what the problems and opportunities are. And then I left GE about four years ago, so I started doing consulting on my own, but still very much focused at the intersection of macroeconomics and technology and innovation, which I find more and more fascinating and more and more relevant. So that, that's how I got here. In the past, you've written about technological revolution in manufacturing and services. Could you give us a bit of color on why you're excited about this area in particular? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I'm very excited for the following reason. You know, this, uh, if you look at the economy as an economist, you know that productivity growth is what powers increases in living standards. Essentially, productivity is what changes the way we live, the way we work, and living standards themselves. Now, after a strong boom in between 1995 and 2006, productivity growth has been languishing, even as the hype about innovation has taken off like never before. In fact, it's, it's remarkable that productivity growth almost died out in 2006, and 2007 was when the first iPhone came out. So we've had enormous excitement about artificial intelligence, robotics, augmented reality, virtual reality, you name it. Yet productivity growth since then has averaged about less than 1% in the US, before in the high growth period, it was 3%. And the same trend, the same decline has been observed in most advanced economies. So the reason I'm excited is I think over the last several years, we have begun to see how these new technologies can really bring a phenomenal transformation throughout industry and services. In fact, I also believe they are starting to blur the traditional lines between manufacturing and services because, you know, from the time I was at G, as I mentioned earlier, I've been really interested in this digital industrial revolution or industry 4.0. Now, this is bringing the power of digital technologies into industrial devices. But that in turn means improvements in software can over time improve what the same industrial machines can do which in turn means that when you sell an industrial device, an industrial machine, you are now selling a vehicle to provide services that can improve over time. And this is why in the industry, you have the spread of the as a service expression, as in manufacturing as a service, software as a service, everything is becoming a service. So I'm excited because I believe this will transform industry, supply chains, most sectors of the economy, it will boost productivity growth and it will accelerate the rise in living standards. And that I find very, very exciting. So what's your reaction to some economists like Robert Gordon, who basically are arguing that technological innovations today are, are all fine and dandy, but they're not as transformative as, as the innovations that we saw in the 19th century, early 20th century. You know, it's not, you know, the internet is great, but it's not like the invention of electricity. And you know, you mentioned the iPhone now. The iPhone is fantastic, very entertaining, but did it change my life over the BlackBerry? Probably not so much in terms of productivity. Where are your thoughts here? You've put it very well, Osama. So Robert Gordon has been probably the most vocal and articulate exponent of this school of thought. He's been arguing, as you said, that this new wave of innovation is essentially nothing more than fun and games and social media, with nothing like the transformative economic power of the Industrial Revolution. He's argued, look, the steam engine, electricity, airplanes, they fundamentally change the way we produce things, the way we transport them, the way we travel. Whereas uh, what we're doing now doesn't, doesn't fundamentally change, it only brings incremental changes in what we do. And so those economists who think like him say that the truly transformative innovations are all behind us. So my first reaction is to say that uh, this shows a, a lack of imagination. It makes me think that back in the Stone Age, there must have been at some point a bunch of cave-dwelling economists sitting around the fire and watching a team of cave-dwelling engineers very excited, rolling a stone wheel up and down a hill. And the economists would be sitting there looking and saying, yeah, you know, the wheel... It's a fun toy, but really 
can do can it do anything for us? Not really. Fire was the last great discovery. So I think you're seeing this here a bit of the dismal attitude of uh, economists, which is quite typical. More seriously, I think Robert Gordon and those who agree with him are missing a very fundamental point, and one which I think is very surprising to see missed by academics. So with the digital revolution, what we are unleashing is the power of information and knowledge. We've developed a new ability to gather data, big data, to store data, to analyze it in new ways, and to get new insights, and to make the resulting knowledge instantly accessible throughout the world. So in doing this, we are essentially opening up an entirely new dimension of improvement. It is very much like the discovery of electricity. So you're opening up a new dimension of improvement and of productivity gains through which companies are finding out how to produce things more efficiently, how to use labor more efficiently, how to organize supply chains a lot more efficiently. So I think there is, a, a, again, a lack of imagination here in not realizing the fact that Unleashing the power of information and data in this way is a very fundamental change, which is indeed comparable in its power to the industrial revolution, to electricity, to the steam engine. And the lack of imagination in understanding how this unleash of information will first uh, translate into improvements in how we build, we create the products and services today, but it's also accelerating the pace at which scientific research and innovation themselves can progress. And you know, we've recently seen a COVID vaccine being developed in essentially less than one year rather than five. And that's another tangible demonstration of how unleashing the power of data and knowledge does accelerate progress and changes the way, changes our lives and our lifestyles and our quality of life in a way that is very much comparable to the industrial revolution in my mind. This is very interesting. Now, you, you know, we mentioned the quality of life. I was listening to you and thinking, why isn't any of this showing up in the overall productivity numbers for the economy? But what you seem to be implying is that there are things that are simply not measured by GDP growth easily. Is that what it is? And if it is a sectoral issue, where should we be looking? That it's one of the aspects, Osama. So the, uh, when you ask, because the question you're asking essentially is, uh, okay, you're very excited, but uh, where are the numbers? This thing is not showing up yet, at least, uh, in the productivity numbers, which is very true. And you know, Gordon, as we were saying earlier, would tell you, well, it's not showing up because it's, it's not there. Other people, and the, the, what you said now, some of the, the issue that, perhaps this is not being measured, the value is there, but it's just not being measured, is something that Halverian, the chief economist of Google, has been arguing very strongly. And he says, look, what is happening is that part of the value we are creating through digital is free. So a lot of the services we use through the internet are free to the consumer. We pay for them, as we know now, in the different way, right? We give up data on our behavior, our preferences, which then get monetized, but we don't pay directly for the consumption of these services. And there is also an issue of the statistics and whether the hedonic adjustments to statistics are correct, whether they are really able to capture the fact that you know, maybe the initial iPhone was not a great improvement over the uh, BlackBerry, at least in terms of office productivity, 
but the improvements that have followed have turned it into a phenomenally powerful instrument. And the value it gives to me as a simple consumer is probably higher than the increase in the actual market price of the iPhone. So the question as to what part of the improvement we are missing through lack of measurement, I think to some extent it's there, but frankly, I don't, I don't think that is the biggest explanation. I'll tell you, for example, if when I was a G, if I had told our CEO, Jeff Immelt at the time, if I told him, don't worry, Jeff, you know, these digital industrial innovations that we are pushing, they are creating tremendous value, but the value is just not being captured in our official revenue numbers. I think he would have thrown me out of the office. He would have said, if they are not being captured in the final numbers, to some extent, they don't count. So I think that Part of the answer is yes, the measurements are still catching up and they're not capturing how much our quality of life has actually improved. But I think a bigger issue for me, which I think is bigger also from the point of view of investment implications, economic implications, is that it takes time. It takes longer than we think. It takes longer than I thought several years ago for the following reasons. The first is that for these technologies to manifest their impact, you need more investment. So to a large extent, these new technologies need to be embodied in a new generation of equipment, of machines in factories. And we know that after the global financial crisis, the recovery in investment has been very slow, very gradual, because companies were held back by the uncertainty on the pace of the recovery. There was the constant fear of, the, of a new crisis. You remember we were concerned about the US fiscal cliff, about the Euro debt crisis. And within companies, you felt that. So there was a reluctance to invest. Investment had then started to accelerate a bit starting in 2017. And then of course the pandemic struck and it held it back again. So the delay in the investment response, I think is part of the issue. The second is that in the early years of the digital industrial revolution, there was quite a lot of skepticism as to whether these innovations could be really useful. So not just Robert Gordon, it was, uh, managers within companies saying, yeah, you come to me talking about software, but I've always been dealing with machines and I trust my engineers. So why should I trust the software guys that are bringing any value? There was skepticism even within G and we were at the forefront of pushing this. And that skepticism needed to be eroded little by little. The third one, the third reason why it takes time is that these innovations are so transformative that if you are a corporation, you can't just invest in say, a 3D printing machine or an industrial robot and say, okay, now I enjoy the productivity gains. You also have to transform your operations in a very fundamental way. So you will have to change the way your production process is organized. You will need to upgrade the skills of your workforce to make sure they are conversant with digital technologies. You will need to change the mindset of your management to make sure they think in terms of data-driven strategies. You will need to change the incentive structures. So it's, it's actually very similar to the way in which with the introduction of the steam engine and then electricity, companies and factories had to reorganize their entire production process to really take advantage of the benefits. And by the way, there's an interesting example on this. So I, I mentioned earlier that productivity had boomed between 1995 and 2006. Now, economists are almost unanimous in saying that the data will show you that was the impact of the first wave of information and computation and communication technology innovations. 
And at the time, we also saw something very interesting. We saw that the benefits of that first wave of digital innovation on productivity were not evenly distributed. So the US benefited a lot more than Europe. And in Europe, the European-based subsidiaries of US companies had a lot stronger benefit in terms of a lot faster productivity growth compared to their European Union counterparts because they were more flexible and faster to adapt. So the ability to invest at a faster pace and change your operations and your mentality has a lot to do with how quickly you can capture the benefits. Now, I think the conditions are in place. Companies are now convinced these innovations bring value. The examples at the micro level of the improvements in efficiency are compelling. And companies today have a desperate need to improve profitability and to make their operations more flexible and resilient because they've seen a series of shocks, especially to supply chains, come over and over again. So now this is happening. The investment is happening. The new technologies are being brought in. Companies are becoming smarter about how to embody the new technologies and how to change their operations, which is why I think that over the coming years, you will see the impact really taking place and you will see it showing up in the numbers. And I think this will have a more important effect than anything we do to improve the statistics and make them better at capturing digital innovation. And thinking of the sort of old economy sectors, what sectors do you think stand to benefit the most, right? Because, because, you know, as investors, we look at technology companies, and it's quite obvious who are, you know, the companies that are producing new technology. But but you're talking about something much more transformative across the economy. And so, what sectors would you think are poised to see the best, uh, the, the most in terms of improvement? I think we're now moving to the industrial sectors, to different areas of manufacturing. So you will see that you will see it not anymore in the companies that provide only disembodied software services to consumers, but you will see it in manufacturing companies. In the electronics manufacturing sector, you will see an acceleration in productivity and also an acceleration in supply because what they produce, chips and everything else, becomes even more important and more in demand, as we as we have seen. You will see it in sectors of manufacturing that produce industrial machinery. You will see it in the transportation sector with the evolution of autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles. You will see it, of course, in the medical industry, where this is also driving an enormous acceleration in progress in healthcare equipment and in healthcare services. And finally, I think you will see it across the energy ecosystem. So not just the acceleration in technologies for renewables, but also the acceleration of progress in making the distribution of energy more intelligent. So all the companies that are involved in smart devices, smart meters, smart devices that can help you intelligently manage electricity consumption in your home, and that can make a variety of home appliances and gadgets more intelligent. I think these are the areas where you will see a lot of progress. Finally, so I would mention also everything which is related to natural resources, because what we're seeing now is an acceleration in the need for 
new natural resources, including new materials. So you will see more progress in technology in the traditional mining sector, which in some cases is already becoming quite sophisticated, and a lot of progress in material sciences. So in companies that are actually working to develop new materials that can perform optimally either to substitute natural resources which are becoming scarce or to perform optimally with new technologies like 3D printing. One topic that you can't avoid at the moment is that of inflation. What are some of the key implications of your views for the long-term outlook for inflation as well as inflation expectations? As you said, Paul, inflation can't be avoided. And I think the uh, in discussing the implications of this uh, innovation revolution, this productivity revolution, I think it's it's crucial, as you hinted, to distinguish between the long term and the short and medium term. In the long term, if I am right, and if we do get an acceleration in productivity growth, this will help contain limit inflation because stronger productivity growth will help companies accommodate stronger increases in real wages without a commensurate need to increase prices. It will also boost the supply and boosting supply compared to demand will have a disinflationary effect. So in the longer term, it will help keep inflation moderate at hopefully the 2% level that central bankers are in love with. Before we get there though, I think in the next couple of years, we get higher inflation as we already have because it will take longer for productivity growth to accelerate. What I mentioned earlier is that it takes time. I believe it's now starting to happen. It's starting to scale this innovation gaining traction in industry and making its benefits felt, but it's going to take longer, a few more years for it to display its full effect. In the meanwhile, everything we see suggests that we have demand running far ahead of supply. I also think the disruption to global supply chains and to the supply side in general, we take longer to resolve than policymakers seem to think. Pretty much everyone I talk to on the industry side says that they expect disruptions to last well into 2022, possibly into 2023. So the supply side has been neglected. I mentioned earlier the slow pace of investment over the last 10 years. The other thing that worries me a bit is the lack of skills and the lack of investment we've seen in education and training, which creates the shortage of workers and skills in several industries. And meanwhile, policy, especially monetary policy, is way too loose for the current economic conditions. So I think over the next couple of years, we get a period of high inflation, 4 to 5% inflation, before the faster productivity starts kicking in and helps us bring inflation back under control. One argument that I found very persuasive that I read over the past year is uh, the relatively recent book by Charles Goodhart and Manoj Pradhan that basically argued that the long-term outlook for inflation is going to be driven by, by demographics. And demographics do not favor a low inflation future because because if we look everywhere around the world except india and sub-saharan africa the the labor force is aging and so you have fewer workers are entering the labor force than people who are retiring and therefore you have you have a shift toward higher wages and and such 
I found this very persuasive at the same time listening to you, whether or not that, that future does materialize essentially relies entirely on the productivity view that you have, right? And I'm wondering what your thoughts are regarding the arguments from, from Godhart and Pradhan. It's a very good point. So I, I find the Pradhan and Goodhart arguments very compelling and very persuasive. And you know, the, the way I read them, in a nutshell, what they're telling us is, look, over the past 20 years or so, with the entry of China and other large emerging markets into the global labor force, we had demographics pushing global supply more than global demand. And if supply grows faster than demand, you get a disinflationary impact. And then they warn us that, look, this is now reversing. So what we will see in the future, as you were saying, Mahmoud, as you were saying, Osama, is that what you will see in the, in the future is that the supply effect will be secondary. It's the demand effect coming from richer emerging markets, which will predominate, and that is inflationary. Now, I think, I think this is correct. And I think the trick will be understanding the balance of uh, that impact, that demographic impact versus the productivity impact. So I think what you will see, let's, uh, let, me, let me try to make it maybe a more, bit more precise. I think their argument will hold almost regardless of whether or not I'm correct on productivity, in the sense that compared to the past 20 years, the demographics will be more favorable to demand than to supply. So the, the supply-demand balance will shift in a way that is inflationary. I think on this one, they are correct. Then the question becomes, does the productivity improvement overwhelm this, or does it only mitigate it? I would think either way, it brings us in an environment where we are definitely no longer worried about deflation, and we're only discussing how strong the inflationary pressures will be and whether we need to worry about them more. And the final point I will make, Osama, is that I think it also tells us that the implications for inflation might be different from country to country and from region to region. So we know that inflation does tend to be a global phenomenon, but I think the productivity growth, the productivity gains over the coming five to 10 years might differ quite significantly from country to country. So you might see that countries that benefit from especially strong productivity growth might have lower inflation than other countries, everything equal. On this, you, you mentioned the different countries around the world and, and demand from emerging markets. Maybe we can step back and, and talk a bit about emerging markets. How will emerging markets really fare in, an, in, in a world where, um, where competitiveness is going to depend on the ability to deploy technologies? And there is always this, this fear regarding many countries that, you know, you could get stuck in a middle income trap. And essentially, that is when you're, you're, a, you're a country that's simply too poor to invest in the cutting edge of new technologies, but too rich to compete based on labor costs, and you get stuck in this middle income trap. And, and we can think of many countries that haven't middle income for a very, very long time. That's a very interesting point. As you say, it brings in an added dimension to the danger of falling into the middle income trap. This interplay between technology and labor costs. Now, I think 
What's interesting is the following. To me, this digital industrial revolution, this new wave of digital innovations, it really raises the stakes. So on the one hand, I think it does level the playing field for countries and companies. But at the same time, it also widens the difference between winners and losers. So for emerging markets, I think it brings a huge opportunity to, in some cases, bypass some of the lack of traditional infrastructure. You have now enormous progress in distributed energy technologies, including the renewable kind, that can help bring reliable power to villages, to business, to factories, even in countries where the traditional electricity grid is very underdeveloped and that has huge potential impact. Similarly, we're developing remote monitoring technologies that can help fix industrial machines at a distance, digital technologies that can help train workers in remote locations, provide them instructions in real time. The same benefits are also accruing for remote hospitals, so improving healthcare, which also improves economic development. We've seen already how digital innovation in finance can compensate in some cases for limited access to traditional banking. So this in some ways gives emerging markets an opportunity to jump ahead and compensate for the lack that they have in traditional in traditional infrastructure. The technology ability here, I think, as you hinted to it to some, I think it comes from the investments potentially coming in from countries which are ahead in the technology curve, be it the US, be it Europe, be it China. And as they bring the technologies into markets that are seen as favorable investment locations that can help enormously. But of course, you do need to make yourself attractive as a country. So while you can use these technologies to compensate for the lack of some of the traditional infrastructures, you need a major effort to improve institutions, to improve the business environment, and to make sure that education and training step up. At the same time as I think some of these emerging markets will take advantage of these opportunities, you will probably see some of the developed countries that maintain excessive rigidities in their economies, in their institutions, or that fall behind on education and training, they will miss the train of this uh, innovation wave and they will miss out on the benefits. So I think we will see some more reshuffling of the traditional dichotomy between emerging markets and developed markets. But to to answer your question directly, I think for those emerging markets countries that miss out on this revolution, yes, they will fall into the middle income trap. The middle income trap will become a quicksand that they can't get out of. And I think something similar will happen at the level of companies. In fact, already a few years ago, the OECD found a widening gap between winners and losers in the corporate sector with the best performing companies powering ahead in terms of productivity, growth, profitability, while the rest is falling behind. And with the winners tending to remain winners and the losers tending to remain losers. So a situation where the stakes really become high because if you fall behind, you will find, you will find it harder and harder to catch up. And I think you will see the same phenomenon for emerging market countries and developed countries. So it's a great opportunity, but if you miss it, you're gonna be in trouble for longer. 
as you're saying, uh, how the widening gap between winners and losers among companies and winners can remain winners and losers would find it very hard to catch up. And I'm really wondering that at least for equity market investors, maybe this is what we're seeing in this in this value versus growth conundrum, why value companies have been underperforming forever. And, and maybe it's a different type of selection that is taking place and 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 it's uh, and that's indeed what we're seeing i think i think that is part of it and i think it's also because uh, some of the value company will have to change they will the, there will be value companies successful value companies in the future but most of them will probably be very different from the ones that we have now and before that transformation happens what you see is you see them lagging behind absolutely well, Marco, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure to, to hear your thoughts and you've given us a lot of food for thought today. It was a great pleasure, Rosanna. Thanks very much for having me. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as the basis for investment decisions. Clients of Parkview may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.